So I'm going to walk us through this uh, wonderful passage, one of my favorite psalms, uh, with three points, and these points um, are these. Um, point one, a joy-filled past. Point two, a joy-filled present. And point three, a joy-filled prayer. I'm a Baptist preacher, right, Pastor? Pastor Eugene knows that, and uh, uh, alliteration comes with the, the job description for me. Um, so I'll start by asking those of you who are listening in, do you take family trips? Do you have any annual trips that you take or have taken in the past with your family? Uh, my, my dad um, served as a very busy pastor of a Korean immigrant church back in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s. And to be quite honest with you, we hardly ever spent much uh, time away with him or any time with him for that matter, because he had this, um, I'm not throwing my dad under the bus here, but he did have this misguided idea that faithfulness in ministry amounted to sacrificing his family at the altar of ministry because he was always serving the church. Um, that's not healthy. That's not biblical um, in perspective or practice, but, but he tried in his understanding of what faithfulness was. But to his credit, he, 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 he took us on these family trips. And I recall when I was about 12 years old, um, we took a, a family trip to Niagara, right? <laughs> Niagara, sorry about that. Niagara Falls, Toronto. Um, and, and during the trip, I had this horrible experience of seeing my, my, my life flash before my proverbial eyes. And I'll explain very quickly as we get into the text, because it's very relevant. Um, in preparation for this trip, my dad splurged, right? We didn't have much as a family, but he splurged on this very expensive 35-millimeter Nikon uh, camera with, with the fancy lens and all the peripherals. And for whatever reason, um, he decided to put yours truly, in charge of the camera. I was 12 years old, pretty irresponsible, and I wasn't too thrilled with the fact that I was put in charge of the camera, because I had to wear the camera around my neck everywhere we went, and during that time, I was struggling with my identity, right? I was this Korean-American kid living, growing up in this Irish-American neighborhood, wishing that I had blue eyes, red hair, and freckles, and, and so on and so forth, so I didn't want to look like that typical, that stereotypical Japanese tourist, um, and so it, it was a damper on, on the outing, but this is, this is what happened. At some point in the trip, I'm sitting in the back row of our church van, and back in the day, church vans always, you know, often were, was the pastor's family car as well, so we're in the church van, we're, we're, you know, near the falls, and I look down, and to my horror, there's no camera around my neck. I just froze in panic. And thankfully, um, we were stuck in some very, very slow-moving traffic, so I shouted out, Appa, stop the car! I ran out of the van, and I went to the back of the van, and I saw the Nikon camera, like, barely hanging on the ledge of the bumper, the rear bumper. My life was saved, right? <laughs> so I grabbed the camera, and I went back into the car, and I still got it from my dad. I, I probably was berated and even, you know, kind of disciplined, you know, but, but uh, if that camera had fallen off, I would not be standing here preaching to you people right now. <laughs> so, um, well, the point of this is, if, 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 you, if you're starting a family, if, if you have a family, um, 
Uh, and you're probably, if you're, if you're having a lot of kids, right, you're probably going to be taking a lot of road trips. Uh, you can't even actually fly very um, you know, to many places nowadays, but you're going to be taking a lot of road trips. Um, make that happen. Make that happen, right? Make that a tradition in your family. Um, because that's what I'm doing for my family. And um, on these road trips, we actually try to have family time together. Rather than being isolated, right, uh, on our devices, we, we play games together and we listen to songs and we sing songs together to bide the time. And there's, again, a, a purpose and a reason and a rationale behind this. So I encourage you to do this. Establish traditions and family trips and sing songs as you go on these trips. Why? And this is where it's relevant to Psalm 126, which I'm going to read right now. So let's open up our Bibles um, to Psalm chapter 126, and I'll read if you could please follow along. Song of Ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Psalm 126 is one of the 15 psalms that biblical scholars refer to as the psalms or the songs of ascent. They run from chapters 120 through 134. These 15 psalms were sung by God's people again and again and again as they made their various pilgrimages to Jerusalem, as they made their family trips, their annual family trips to this place. They would, they would journey to the temple at Zion for Passover, for Pentecost, for tabernacles, their, their great annual feasts and festivals, and, and the psalms, the songs of ascent, this was essentially their, their contemporary, yeah, to bring it into contemporary terms, this was their Spotify playlist, so to speak, right? You guys have perhaps, Pastor Eugene, you probably have a workout playlist, on Spotify, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. Uh, some of you have your study playlist, right? I have my chill, relaxing playlist, and it's really funny, my chill, relaxing playlist is like all songs from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. When I put it on, my kids roll their eyes at me, and they're like, Dad, not this again, you know? But then I listen to their, their, the music they listen to, they've got all my old songs on their playlist. It's hilarious, right? Um, this, this was their pilgrimage playlist. This particular Psalm 126, is the seventh of the 15 pilgrimage songs of ascent. And if you had to categorize this psalm, which again is one of my favorites, um, it's one that mixes a lot of different genres and categories. It's, it's certainly a praise psalm, it's a thanksgiving psalm, it's a covenantal promise psalm, and it's even a psalm of lament. So all in all, it's a very, very dynamic psalm. Because in six verses, the psalmist reveals so much to us about Yahweh's steadfast, loving kindness, his faithfulness to his people, past, present, 
and even future. And while these songs of ascent were sung together to help prime their hearts, right, kind of like what the worship team did for us, preparing us to, uh, bringing us into, before the throne room of grace so that we could continue in our worship, right? It, it was a, a way that pumped, it was what pumped them up and readied them for temple worship. Worship was actually taking place on the journey. There was so much joy in the journey, one of my favorite, one of my wife's favorite Michael Card songs, as they were singing these songs of joy. And worship team, I'm sure like sometimes when you practice, you have your worship jam sessions, practice sessions, but you end up worshiping God because you just can't help it, right? That's what was taking place in these annual trips. They were experiencing, the author begins, a joy-filled past. The author hearkens us back to the past in verses 1 and 2 it says, When the Lord restored, past tense, the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts. The NIV uses the word songs of joy. What is this past that the psalmist is speaking of? Honestly, I'll be forthright with you. I don't know. And the scholars really don't know for sure as well. The psalmist doesn't give a specific reference here, a moment of uh, Israelite history, a particular act of restoration or deliverance that God provided. A guy named Calvin, right, John Calvin, he's certain that it refers back to their liberation from the Babylonian exile, but other scholars disagree. They say otherwise. So what is it? I can't tell you. But this is what's really cool. It almost doesn't matter. It's okay that we can't say conclusively what this psalm is referring back to. And I can say this, we can say this, and, and, and hold to this dearly, because if you were to open up to any page, nearly any page in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, you will find so many allusions and so many stories and so, many, so much revelation of God's merciful deliverance. This is what Tremper Longman uh, a scholar on the Psalms, Old Testament scholar, this is what he writes on this Psalm. He says, we will give consideration to a possible historical setting for the composition of the Psalm as the return from Babylon. While such a moment is fitting, the poem is not concretely connected to that time and thus can be used in any setting where God in his grace and his mercy restores the fortunes of his people. So what matters here is we can be sure that the psalmist is speaking of something true, something that has happened in the, the past of, of God's covenant people. But let's use the Babylonian exile as an example. Let's reference, let's say that this psalm is referencing their return from captivity and restoration. If that's so, you know, just... Humanly speaking, naturally, in a sense, what should the writer have written? What, 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 what kind of account should there be? Yes, God liberated his people from exile, but what kind of exile was it? Right? What, 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 what was their time in Babylon like? It was horrific. It was absolutely horrific. Another scholar described their experience in this brutal captivity, this exile, this way, the worst that can come to any of us, rape in the streets, 
Cannibalism in the kitchens, neighbors reduced to bestiality, a 600-mile forced march across a desert, the taunting mockeries of captors. We don't hear that in this song. We don't hear about, I mean, in other accounts of the Bible, sure, we hear about and read about it. We hear about their great city of peace, Yerushalayim, right? being defeated and destroyed. We hear about the walls of their great city being not raised, but raised and destroyed. What, what, what provided them physical protection against their enemies. Women and children being raped and, and brutalized, unspeakable atrocities of many forms committed against the weak. They, they saw with their own eyes uh, the, the glorious temple that took Solomon seven years uh, to construct. They saw it being uh, destroyed and ransacked. They basically saw their identity and their heritage being stripped away from them. It was that terrible. This is what they suffered. We know the Lord didn't leave them there. And we know it from this song. Right? Because they experienced a joy-filled past of liberation and restoration that eclipsed their dreadful and horrific exile experiences. And so they shout out and they sing with incredible relief of this deliverance. This deliverance from a nightmare, right? They, they experienced this nightmare that came to fruition and then you hear about them reveling in laughter and songs and shouts of joy. Not, not bitterness, not rage, but satisfaction and joy. Old Testament scholar, commentator, another guy, Derek Kidner, he describes the experience of laughter and shouts of joy as delirium, delirious happiness. They were going crazy, right? Some of us are big-time sports fans, right? I follow all things Rutgers University, and they're pathetic. They hardly ever win. So I'm, I'm serious. They were like offensive football-wise production. They were the worst for like three years in a row. They could not score a touchdown, ever. So when, whenever that you know, foot-long pigskin, a piece of leather would cross the goal line, I would go into like a delirious frenzy, right? I'd be alone in my living room. I'm the only one watching the game in my family because no one cares about Rutgers football. I'd go into like this delirious kind of just screaming, passionate frenzy because it was too good to be true. Rutgers scored a touchdown, right? It was like a dream come true. That's what they're experiencing. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Have you guys ever experienced such a pleasant dream that, that you didn't want to wake up from it? And when you did, you, you did everything you, you, you possibly could to will yourself back to sleep. Have you ever experienced that? I, I have in the past, right? That's what we hear and read about and certainly sense in this passage. Despite the people of Judah, the Israelite people, experiencing what some other scholars have compared the exile to. Some scholars have compared the Babylonian exile as a pre-Holocaust Holocaust. That's what they experienced. And yet they're liberated, they're restored, and this, this, this occasion was so tremendous, so remarkable, 
that not only did God's people experience this, like, oh my goodness, it was like a dream come true. What does the text reveal to us? The nations, right? The surrounding nations exclaimed, the Lord has done great things for them. Think about that. God's people and their experiences, they became the talk of the nations, heathen nations, Gentile nations. That did, did not, did, they certainly did not fear Yahweh, the one and true God. They were talking about the covenant people of, of Israel and saying the Lord has done great things for them. That's just incredible. And that leads us to our second point, a joy-filled present. The psalmist here, inspired by the Spirit of God to reminisce of, of the glorious past, this glorious restoration, this liberation, now gets us to his here and now. In verse 3 it says, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Now essentially what the psalmist is doing here is he's expressing how past joys are now informing and forming and even reforming his present situation. How it's leading him to rejoice, to experience joy so much that he sings about, sings songs of joy and shouts songs of joy. He says it three times, shouts of joy. The NIV renders it songs of joy, whichever you please, pleases you. This is the pattern for the eternal joy that we should be experiencing as God's people. The, the joy of our past should be informing and forming and, and reforming the joy that we should be experiencing now. Now, going back to the, what they experienced as a covenant people, some of us haven't experienced what the Israelites experienced. Maybe, some, maybe our parents or probably our grandparents, when they experienced, uh, this is predominantly Korean-American crowd, uh, when they experienced liberation from Japanese imperialism, that was incredible, tremendous, right? It was, it was just, it, it brought the people of, of um, you know, Korea to a place of, of delirious celebration, right? Some of us might not be able to relate to such experiences, but I would argue that we have an experience that trumps such a liberation because we have experienced an infinitely greater eternal liberation in our union with God through Christ Jesus. When we experience the saving grace of God, we experience the deliverance that far surpasses any other type of redemption or liberation or restoration known throughout history or any that we will ever know. And this is what must be fueling our present situation. This is what must be leading us to songs and shouts of joy. But often it isn't where we're at. And it doesn't lead us to get to that place because, because we drift. Our memories become fuzzy and, and clouded. Our hearts grow cold and distant and, and even calloused. And to compound that, sometimes we look to other, not sometimes, often, we look to other things to fuel our happiness and our contentment. Um, 
other things where we find our quote-unquote joy, our temporal joys. And I'd like to ask all of you watching, those of you here in this auditorium, this worship center, what is currently fueling your happiness, your contentment in this current season? I, I can't wait to hear Pastor Eugene's plans, how, how the, the leadership has, is going to be rolling out the plans of reopening, perhaps reopening of, you know, society, perhaps, you know, hearing that restaurants are finally, you can go out and you don't have to take out, right? You can go and sit down with the buddy, you know, six feet away with the mask, whatever the, the, the case might be, I don't know. Maybe that is bringing you great joy and happiness and relief. We've been living in some remarkable, unprecedented, surreal times these past three or so months. Maybe your financial situation is what's fueling your joy. Maybe you've gotten a new promotion, you know, in the workplace. Maybe during, you know, this past few months, somehow or other, uh, you've, you've uh, you know, formed a new relationship, right, with a guy or, or a gal, or just, just struck up a new friendship, right, even in this pandemic season. That's great. For those of you who are older, maybe you have a child who was accepted into that elite institution. I don't know. Maybe uh, a gift you've received uh, that you're still enjoying. Maybe it's your new Tesla. I don't know. What is bringing you joy? What is bringing you satisfaction right now? I want to remind you that you have experienced something greater. You have received something more immensely, immensely powerful. Your redemption through and in Christ Jesus. That surpasses any type of geopolitical wartime liberation known throughout history or anything else that, that is, is, is bringing you happiness, contentment, and joy. And I want to urge all of you, look back to the joy of your salvation. Look back to the time when you didn't know God, when, didn't, when God... Before God made his presence known to you, before, think of who you were before Christ and, and then think of who you became in light of the gospel. Who you are now for all eternity and will be for all eternity because of what Jesus Christ accomplished upon the cross once and for all. Personally, I think of the words of John Newton. He was a self-proclaimed former wretch, right? And he wasn't just a wretch, right? You could say that word and it sounds so nice, wretch, right? He was a wretch, a wretch. He was a, a slave trade, a facilitator of, sla of the slave trade, right? He was, a, he was one who facilitated human trafficking, which is basically what slave trade is. He says this, he said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Look back to your salvation. And think of what you were saved from. Your sin. Your guilt. Your shame. The depressed state you were in. You were saved from hell. You were saved from the clutches of the grip of Satan, who is your master. You were saved from the wrath of God, eternal separation from God. And you were made to be a child of God, an heir and a co-heir of this glorious inheritance that we can't even fathom.
There's something wonderful and, and exhilarating about thinking back to your past, to your saving faith experience, your conversion. The nearer you are to your humble salvation, the thought of it, the memory of it, the sweeter your present lives and your situation will be. I believe this is true. Have you ever thought about the babes in Christ in your, in your midst? Have you noticed how it's often the babes of Christ? It, it shouldn't be this way. It should be inverted. Those who are more mature, who've experienced the grace of God over you know, prolonged periods of life, they should be all the more passionate and fired up and zealous for the Lord and the things of God and the mission of God. But have you noticed how it's like those who've just been saved, right? We had this lady in our church who moved to Florida. She was a newborn Christian. She was a single mom. She had one son uh, who was friends with my son. And um, husband was, um, I won't get into too many details, but she was a, a newfound Christian, and you found babe in Christ. And I recall she was always gathering with God's people. She was always hungry and ravenous, like a little baby who always needs to suckle and, 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 and feed, always wanting to hear God's word, whether it be at the Sunday gathering or the community group or, or the ladies' group or the, whatever the situation, she was always there. She couldn't not be there. And she was always ready to receive, right? Pastors, preachers, you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, sometimes when you're, when, you're dropping an, when you're laying an egg, right, you look around and you know who to look to because whether or not you're preaching well, whether or not you're, you know, you're hitting, you know, dribbling a, a kind of like an infield grounder <laughs> or striking out or hitting a home run, you know those people who will look to you and who will be engaged and who will encourage you, right? This lady was one of those people that I could look to when I was laying an egg. And, and the gospel is not the egg. My preaching was often the egg that was being laid, right? I could look to her because she was so, so hungry and so eager to be fed. Everyone else, you know, they're doing this. The heads are bobbing and, and their eyes, you know, they're looking at me cross-eyed because they have no idea what I'm saying. This lady I could look to. And guess what? She was always telling people about Jesus. You know, my life was such and such a way, but now I know Jesus Christ, and my life has been radically transformed, changed. I was once always depressed about how I looked, how I felt, my, my marital situation, and now I look to Jesus, and my life is n by no means perfect, no means how I'd like it to be this side of heaven, but I am full of joy because I know that my Savior died for me. We had this other guy. He was a, a student from Korea on a student visa, and he was saved in Korea right before he immigrated, well, he came to, to study English, and this brother joined us during our first version of Maranatha, right? We planted the church, and then we replanted, we closed it down, then we replanted it. This guy was so, so hot for Jesus. He was so passionate for the things of God. He could barely speak English. And you know what he's saying everywhere he goes? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It got to the point where some of the leaders of our church plan, there weren't many of us, right? Humanly speaking, Maranatha, the first version, was like a train wreck of a church plant. It got to the point where the leaders were like, oh, brother, chill out, right? You know what he used to do? 
I kid you not. He used to walk around with this boombox and play like Stephen Curtis Chapman songs and, and um, who were some other old-time CCM artists. He, you know, he used to play these, this music everywhere he went. He'd be like, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Jesus, Jesus is my Savior. And we'd be like, just chill out. Just chill out, right? And he would just be telling anyone and everyone about Jesus. This guy and that lady, the single mom, right? They knew Christ, and they knew him crucified, and they wanted to be witnesses to this joy that they now had. That is not child, childishness. It's childlikeness, right? We may look at it and say, ah, oh, they'll soon learn how hard life is. They'll soon learn what relational evangelism is. I'm not knocking relational evangelism. They'll soon learn what it means to contextualize the message of the gospel to people, right? Cater to, to, to the audience, and all those things are legit. But these people, they didn't have babes in Christ, that fear that often arises in our hearts because we've become hardened, because things have become old hat for us. Where are you this present moment? Has the gospel made you glad? Remember, remember that old time song, he has made me glad, he has made me glad, I will rejoice for he has made me glad, <laughs> right? Are you experiencing that gladness that you experienced in the past now in this present moment. I experienced the salvation my junior year before my senior year of high school, in the summer in between. I was not seeking out the Lord, and yet He saved me. I was not looking or searching out spiritual things. I was a contradiction. I thought on the one hand that I was, you know, I was uh, a nice guy, uh, a guy that everyone got along with, um, popular relatively in my crowd at high school, right? And yet, on the other hand, I was so insecure with myself, right? I, I, I was smug and insecure. I was arrogant and proud and so, so, so fearful and feeling so insecure, again, about my identity and who I was. And if I, if I you know, kind of um, could... could could match up to, to those around me. And then, and then the Lord just saved me from all of this. And he brought joy into my life. This is what the psalmist is writing about because this is what he's experiencing. It was his identity. He was a joyful follower and worshiper of God. And the really cool thing about this Old Testament passage and so much of the Old Testament actually is um, where this takes place in salvation history, right? This joy that he's experiencing, past and present we've got to, right, actually flowed out of the life that he would have centuries ahead through Christ Jesus. It, it was a life that he wasn't even fully aware of but a life and a faith that he could look forward to because his faith would be a gift from God, pronounced from before time began. 
This is the joy that we have looking back on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And what we can know looking back and reading from the scriptures of how Jesus Christ has finished the work on our behalf. How Jesus Christ took full responsibility and bore our sin upon his shoulders on that cross, right? What's the hashtag nowadays? Very recent, I take full responsibility, right? We cannot take full responsibility for the sin that befalls us, for the sin that separated us from God. Jesus Christ took full responsibility. And so what that reveals to us now and should for all of our time here is that while joy is, is, is something we should be experiencing, right? It, it's not a moral kind of requirement in order for us to be accepted by God. And, and we learn that from Galatians 5, right? Which tells us that it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's given to us. We grow in it. It's cultivated in our lives, but it's something that is given to us. So it's not a requirement, but it is a result. It is a gift that is given to us, joy and life abundance. Are you experiencing this, brothers and sisters? Are you experiencing a warmness, a softness, a receptivity to the things of God, to the mission of God, to the community of God in your life? If you're not, it might be because you're looking to other things. Your eyes have, your face has been, has been distracted. And instead of looking to the God of your salvation, you're looking to the gifts that God has given to you, the blessings in your life. The ultimate blessing is this reality that God has turned your mourning into dancing. God has lifted your sorrows. And if that truly is the case, and I know it is for many of you, then you cannot stay silent. You must, as the psalmist sings and shouts songs of words of a life of joy. And that leads us to our last point, a joy-filled prayer. Verses 4 through 6, I'll reread, say, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, shouts of joy we read in verse 2, 3, and 5, right? But we also just, um, actually, verse 6 as well. It's cool because the Hebrew word or the phrase is actually joy of joy, right? <laughs> I think that's kind of cool, right? Whenever something is repeated, uh, it means it's, it's, it's being emphasized. It's repeated three times. It's being ultra, uber emphasized. Now, what are the circumstances for the psalmist that are leading him to pray on behalf of his people? Because this, this portion of the psalm sounds like a prayer. God, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. I'm going to have to apologize to you once again because um, I don't know. Again, it's inconclusive here. We don't know um, specifically what he's crying out 
for, what the specific supplication um, was being lifted up for. He speaks of this region in the Negev, right? You could, you could spell it with a V or a B at the end, Negev, Negev. And what this tells us is that it would have been a very bold prayer request. Why? Because this region was known to be an extremely uh, barren, extremely arid region where you wouldn't normally find life, right, vegetation. And yet he's saying, like streams in the Negev, restore our fortunes. This is a pretty bold request that this psalmist is lifting up. And, and this psalmist is one, is a man who is rejoicing in his past, who is rejoicing in his present. And so perhaps you're thinking, well, he's worthy. He's in the right place to make such a request from God. What if you're in an unfaithful state, right? What if you're in that callous, cold-hearted um, state of, of mind and heart? If you were there, perhaps you'd be thinking, this is like a prodigal praying, right? The prodigal who says, God, you know, Father, I, I, I want my portion of the inheritance and I'm out. I, don't, I despise you and in my mind, you, you, know, you no longer, you're dead to me. Some of us are in that place. And yet what the word of God reassures us with is we can lift up even these types of bold prayers to God by the sheer fact of what Christ has done on our behalf. Because of who we are. Because of the union that we have in Christ Jesus. But the reality is the psalmist, regardless of how greatly he's rejoicing, he's no different from us, apart from Christ. Right? He's no different from the prodigal. And he has this boldness to ask for everything. In and of himself, we in and of ourselves have no right to ask God for any such bold thing. But because of Christ, in Christ, we can ask our Father, cry out to him for the most outlandish things. And God will not always answer. He actually will often not answer us according to our will, but he will answer according to his will. And he wants to hear us all the time. The psalmist cries out for a restoration of fortunes. He cries out for comfort. He cries out for, for a, a harvest, right? Bearing the seed for sowing, coming home with shouts of joy, a harvest of joy, right? How, how can he ask of these things? And, and will this become a reality? This joy-filled prayer, will it become a reality in the future? Yes, yes, it will. And I've already mentioned how it will. The ultimate, the ultimate consummation comes in the form of Jesus Christ, right? Who came to fulfill all the prophecies, to fulfill the, the great need that we had for something outside of us to obtain a salvation for us. But even later on, the, the, the prophet Isaiah, and, and so, so much is, actually the prophet Isaiah speaks of, uh, you know, a time um, during the exile when people were crying out for restoration, but we, we see it come to fruition, this prayer, through the salvation that God provides. 
Maybe some of us aren't confident that our futures are, are held in the hands of God. Maybe some of us, again, are in this place where we can't remember the joy of knowing God, the joy of our salvation. Maybe some of us are really struggling with you know, what's taking place in our society because it, the implications have been pretty stressful and damaging and hurtful in your life. Maybe you've been canceled by some of your friends. You know what I mean? Like, we're living in this cancel culture. Whatever side you take, and I'm sure that can even be nuanced in you know, further streams, but whatever side you take, if you don't fall in line and respond and tweet and post, you know, just perfectly what that side or that perspective adheres to or what this side or perspective adheres to, then you're canceled. Maybe you've been canceled and you're just depressed and you're really concerned about the future of not only your relationships with these people, but the future of evangelicalism, the future of the church, the future of our society. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm, I'm trying to walk through all these things and, and kind of make myself, like find my way through all the weeds and just be discerning, understanding what the truth of God and what my worldview should be in light of the gospel. But I want to share with you that in Christ Jesus, we don't have to struggle with what the future holds. We don't. I want to read to you something, and this will be pretty much near the close of, of the sermon, something that I read that brought me great assurance of the future because it brought me back to the past. It brought me back to the gospel, right? It says, for much of our lives, we were looking through a stained glass window, seeing the world through pretty hues and rose-colored lenses. Recently, every media source has been set ablaze to bring light to the darkness of our society. Every day, our eyes have been opened to a tiny fracture, a fracture of the facade, as we firm, finally direct our focus and attention to see through the cracks in the windows of bright colors. The past few weeks have only served to enlighten us to what's always been there. What we now fail to recognize is that it is not, in fact, a window to see the outside or a window separating us from the evil of the society we live in. It is a mirror. We are seeing the reality of our brokenness. The pigments that we thought were the window stains are the stains of each other's blood. The horrible things we are seeing everywhere is a reflection of our inner selves. We lie and belittle and hate and hurt and betray and kill and destroy. We hold hatred and animosity toward one another, against one another, while beaming smiles and false promises. We judge and defile, hiding behind screens and social media posts. We fight on behalf of others with fervor and fierce words in order to follow the crowd and not fall behind. We cling to our pride. We are more numb and indifferent to our brokenness than we'd ever dare to admit. We, every single one of us individually, are as broken as the world we are living in. 
I too pray for a world that isn't so broken, a world that's just a little closer to perfect, a world where your skin color or culture, gender, socioeconomic status, beliefs, accomplishments, weight, appearance doesn't determine your value, a world where posts and protests aren't necessary, a world where neighborhoods and communities and store owners and families don't have to live in fear, a world where speaking your opinions about issues don't, doesn't result in anger and the severing of friendships, a world where children can grow up with the assurance that police officers are here to protect us, that our society is serving justice, and our leaders are making wise decisions for our good, a world without broken families, a world without just pain, a world without pain, disease, hurt, and suffering, a world where innocent people don't have to suffer and die at the hands of others. The crowds didn't protest when another innocent man was arrested, tortured, and publicly executed for crimes he did not commit. He was the only perfect one, the only human who ever lived without any blemish, without one complaint or lie or wrongful action or false motive, and yet the people cheered for his death. He had not one resentful thought or act of vengeance toward those who put him through this agony and pain, but he did it all in love. In one horrific act of injustice, justice was completed for the crimes of all humanity, and through him, we gain an amazing hope for a perfect future, a future where everything broken will become mended, every injustice will be made right, every pain will be healed, and every tear will be wiped away. Perfection comes at a price, but the punishment has been paid. Last page, real quick. So now, in light of this, we must pray. As the psalmist did here, we must mourn as the psalmist does here, and refer to mourning and lamenting and cry out. We must learn and unlearn. We must reach out to those who are suffering, and we must act and demand change, but all must be done in love. And we must remember that the light of the gospel is the only thing that can bring true and lasting reconciliation and peace. This was written by my daughter, after I had taken her to a couple of, uh, well, taken her to a protest and had led her and my family through just understanding what's, what's, what we're being, what we're seeing through the media and up close and personal in real life, everyday life. And I was so encouraged to be ministered to and reminded through her words of the joy that I have past present, and future. The joy that, that is experienced in this life that is still yet fraught with pain and suffering and injustice and hardship and trial, but ultimately this joy that we will have for all eternity because of what Jesus Christ suffered in my place. And this is what the psalmist speaks of and he speaks to. And my encouragement to you, Church Gathered and Scattered, is to let that joy out. Your joy is made complete. How? Of course, it's made complete in Christ Jesus. But the outflow of that joy is, is completed when you tell others about this Jesus. Right? Surprised by Joy is a book by C.S. Lewis, and in this book, what he basically says is, whatever joy you experience, and whatever it might be, right, an incredible song or a sunset or, you know, an incredible kind of plate of food, that's often where my joy flows out of, what do you have to do? You have to share it with others. You have to say, come and hear this great symphony. Look at that incredible piece of artwork. Taste this glorious food. In the same way, 
the joy that we know, past, present, and future, we need to share with others, and then it becomes complete in us. Let's pray.